0: Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Okay, I have a, a title slide if you want to put that up. So um, this morning, we're going to talk about Christology, Um, and the way I I sort of summarize this is uh, the character and the glory of Jesus. Um, A few weeks ago now, um, I uh, got to teach because, I don't know, there was something going on. Uh, Nate was here, but I still got to teach. But I was talking about the, uh, the glory and the goodness of God, and I was telling that through his story. And so we broke down like, the essential elements of a story, like your, your setting, your characters, your conflict, your climax, your resolution. We talked about those sort of details and how that actually affects and reflects the goodness and the glory of God. Because his story isn't just the Bible. His story is all of history. Um, the, the major point we're driving home with the story of the Lord is that the main character of everything forever is the Lord. <laughs> he is the chief character. He's the one that it's all about. When you're confused, like this is so, such a, a, a strange or dark season, it's because it's really about the Lord. And, and if we try to make it about us, it's very confusing and it's very difficult. But it's really about him. And so this morning, I want to spend a little bit more time keying on the character of who God is, and specifically in Jesus. So, I define this term Christology with a, a quote from a guy named Thomas Oden. He says, Christology is that study that inquires critically and systematically into this person, Jesus the Christ. Now, that seems like pretty, pretty silly, pretty simple, Um, And my goal this morning is not to be like pedantic or like fill you with Bible trivia for your next like Bible shootout night. But the idea is that realistically, if we take the words of Jesus seriously, which I highly recommend you do, then our primary preoccupation is the person of Jesus. So we can't belabor who he is and what he's like. We can't like make too much of what he is and what he's like and who he is and what he said and all those sort of things because he is, in fact, the most important person ever. I have another quote. Um, if you want to, yeah, there it goes. Being a Christian does not mean, first and foremost, believing a message. It means believing in a person. Christian teaching is therefore personally grounded. It lives in response to a personal life yet alive. Christian teaching only serves to show the way that leads to faith in this person, this person being Jesus. I had a teacher who I, I dearly love. I wrote in my notes I dearly loved him, but he's still alive, so I still, he's not gone or anything, um, Stephen Venable, and he, he taught about this, this subject, and he taught about it this way, uh, Christology is not a subject among other doctrines of the Christian faith, it is everything. Christianity is a relationship to a person. Relationship is sustained through the fostering of adoring knowledge, and thus Christology is virtually synonymous with Christianity. And I think that sounds so like a word like, that has an ology on it. It sounds so academic, right? But the reality is what this is meant to bring us to is the affectionate pursuit of Jesus because it's easy to be excited about something. Um, I think probably one of the easiest examples is like um, a a professional athlete or like an actor, like a famous person. It's easy to be like, man, I love every movie that person's in, or like that is my player. Whatever team they're playing on, that is my player. You know their stats, you know their history, you know what college they went to, all this sort of stuff. But the reality is you don't actually know that person. And it's easy to be excited about that, that person that you don't know. But the reality is that's not the goal of what we're after. If that is the way you treated your friends, you would be a bad friend. Like, I love having friends. I don't really like spending time with them. I don't really know anything about them, but just the fact that they're my friends and they're on reserve, so that way I can tap into that resource whenever I want. I love my friends. Your friends will not be your friends for very long unless you have the best doormats to be your friends. I think we've all had friends like that that are, maybe you are a friend like that, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, if you're tired of quotes from people you don't know, here's a quote from uh, a guy named Jesus. Uh, John 17:3. this is like one of the only like systematic definitions of eternal life in the Bible. Look at this. This is eternal life. Look how def- definitive that is. <laughs> Jesus is just straight up saying it. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying, this is the substance of creation, and the reason for everything is that you would know God and that you would know Jesus. And this knowledge isn't, again, trivia. This knowledge is um, relationship. So we have three questions that we're going to ask. Um, I think that's like the easiest way. I'm a big fan of like a syllabus and a rubric. Like, I think if you're just like, well, let's just look at God. It's like, well, let's just uh, drink the ocean, you know, like, what do we, like how are we going to just look at God? So we're going to ask three main questions today. Most of our time is going to be spent on question number one, and then question number one is going to pretty naturally answer two and three. So number one is, how is Jesus God? This is actually hugely important. I remember um, almost two years ago now, I was teaching in a youth group, and I said this statement. Jesus is God, and I think I was talking about him like casting out demons or something like that, and I just made the statement like, Jesus is God. He forgives sins, he's God, and this little girl who didn't really have a background in church, her main exposure to church was youth group, she was like, what, God is God. Jesus is, he's like an angel or something, right? He's like an important person, but like, Jesus is God? I was like, yeah. And and as like a, probably a a pretty um, questionable experiment, I asked another kid to explain to that kid that how Jesus was God. And the reason I did this is because this other kid was very snarky. And she was like, you don't know that? Why are you even here? And it's like, dude, that's really mean. Um, And I was like, explain it to her. Explain how Jesus is God, but God is still the Lord. And she's like, well, he is. And it says it in the Bible and stuff. And I was like, well, that's like the worst answer ever. You know, it's like Um, Yeah, you're going to need to spend $2,000 to fix your car. Why? Because my little reader said you do. Jeez, leave me alone. Like, nobody wants to do that. That's not a good answer. We need to actually search this out. And this is hugely important because this is going to be a source of tension in this season. And I think especially as we are approaching headlong into the generation of the Lord's return... This is really important to understand that Jesus is God and how this actually makes sense. Because Jesus warns us in Matthew 24 that many, like as in more than one person, will come and say, I am the Christ, follow me. And he will deceive many. And us sitting in church, if you are like claiming to be a Christian, you're like, how is that possible? If somebody came here today and said that they were Jesus, that they were the Christ, we would be sketched out. We would, we would ask the security team to escort that person out of the building. But yet Jesus, who is a heck ton smarter than us, says many will be deceived by these people. That there will be confusion based on the vagueness or the incorrect thoughts about Jesus. And it will lead people to ruin. And I hope that scares you and I hope that gets you a little bit excited because we're going to look at Jesus today. So um, here's a, the first of many quotes by... Uh, this uh anglican theology professor from england um dr richard bachman i probably have to pay him royalties after this he wrote a whole book about this so i'm quoting him a ton so uh this quote oh okay. good, wait yeah that's right uh jews understood their practice of minultry which is uh exclusive worship like one worship to be justified indeed required because of the unique identity of yahweh was so understood as to place him not merely at the summit of a hierarchy of divinity but in an absolutely unique category beyond comparison with anything else and so this is to dispel any sort of light thought that jesus is like god light or he's a lot like god or he's an intermediary figure of God like an angel or anything like that the problem is when people in the Bible saw angels they freaked out and passed out and and started to worship them and the angels are like stop you're missing the point I'm created just like you but yet when John the Baptist was being praised for his his mighty deeds and the way he spoke and how weird he was he's like man there's one coming after me you guys He's so much different than a prophet. He's so much different than an angel. And, and what the, the good professor is saying here is like that, that God is in an altogether unique category. He's not just the best, He is the only. He is holy. And we're going to venture that with Jesus today. So, the second question we're going to ask, and I think it's a good question why did Jesus have to die? Um, because, again, we can provide a great answer with for our sins but I have been in debt and I've never had to die. I don't know, I'm still alive. I've never had to die for a debt that I've had. I've heard of people that are in crazy, like out of this world debt and not had to die. And there's even people who have done horrible things who have been able to serve a sentence in prison and not have to die. And by that, no one could actually die on their behalf. Like, you know what, I'll just go ahead and take this like serial killer's punishment and then you can let them go. That's not how our society works. So we're going to explore why did Jesus have to die? And specifically that word have to, not just like why did he get to, I don't know. And number three is how was Jesus able to die? (laughs) Because um, there's something there. When, When I take some time this morning and explain how Jesus is God and how holy and cosmic, powerful, crazy, universally holy God is, and then all of a sudden I say, and then he died. How is that possible? How is God, who is uncreated and eternal, able to physically die? So we're gonna look at that question as well. So let's get started with question number one, which again, in case you forgot, is how is Jesus God? Here's another quote. The acts of God and the character description of God combine to indicate a consistent identity of the one who acts graciously towards his people and can be expected to do so. So, in life, in our experience, in all of history, God is not playing this cosmic game of good cop, bad cop. Because at a very quick cursory glance of the Bible, it's easy to look at the God of the Old Testament who says, go into Moab, go into, uh, and, and, and destroy all of the Amalekites, kill everyone. <laughs> And then look at Jesus who says, love your enemies and pray those who persecute you. It's like, those are not the same guy. They sound so different. How, how is that consistent? And what, what uh, Dr. Bachman is saying here is like, throughout the scriptures, when you look at them in the context to each other, what we will begin to see is there is a consistent, reliable, and faithful identity of God. And that consistent, reliable, faithful identity of God is predicated on grace, that he is incredibly gracious and merciful. And so even when we look at severe passages of the Old Testament, we need to look at it in the vantage point of the entire scripture, because when you meet somebody for the first time, you may have an incredible first impression and then find out that they are not so nice of a person. And vice versa, you may have a, an, a horrible first impression and find out that there are circumstances that you don't understand and people are complex. <laughs> and it's the same with the Lord, and that's why it's so important that he is not just an energy force, he's not just a concept or an ideal, he is in fact a person, and you can look at him incorrectly or incompletely and misunderstand him. And, and this is a side point, I don't think the Lord is terribly intimidated by that. I don't think he's like, oh well, I better not say that because I don't want people to misunderstand what I mean. Like, if you just take like a chunk of Jesus' teaching, you're like, he, he needs to explain himself. Because even like John 6, if you want any part of me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says most people were like, nope. <laughs> it's like. I've done a lot of weird things in my life, Jesus, but I'm not doing that. And most people left, and then there's like the 12 that were left over, and and Jesus is like, oh, you guys are still here. And they're like, honestly, (laughs) I don't know where else we would go, but that doesn't make any sense. Like, they didn't say that in the passage, but I imagine they eventually had a conversation. But people had to ask Jesus questions, and he was intimidating to ask questions about. Anyways, I'm getting off, off off the track there. Um... So the character of the Lord is consistent. His identity is consistent, and he is faithful with himself. And our appeared contradictions are, are only attributed as contradictions because of a, a lack of perspective. And I think it's easy to, like, um, if I was debating with someone, which I really hate debating, but if I was debating with someone and they're like, that's a cop-out. Of course you can say, like, oh, well, you don't get it. But the reality is, like, it's the same thing with a person. People can say things, and you're like, that just doesn't make sense. I don't understand why they would say that. But you don't know where they're coming from and why they're doing this. And especially when we're talking about the most important and the most holy and kind person ever, there is love that is not affirming. Let me, let me say that another way because uh, I've said this before, and it's really confusing. There is love that is not affirming. There is love that doesn't make you feel good. And, and if any of you have ever had somebody that you love, you understand this. Maybe you don't even realize that you understand this, but this is real because if you always affirmed a person that you love, then you would let bad things happen to them. But love, true love, does what is best for a person. It's it like, the point of like comparing it to parenting is so overdone, that's cliche by now. But listen, if you let your, your kids do whatever made them happy, they would die. Right? There is not some innate wisdom built in there. They will die. People will always say like, oh, let your kids touch the stove. They'll only do it once. Not my kids. Holy moly. (laughs) Like if you don't slap their hand away, they're just going to keep doing it. Right? (laughs) Maybe your kids are different. But the reality is like you can't affirm somebody all the time. And sometimes love is actually telling you things that are hard. And sometimes love actually is saying enough is enough. You cut it out. You know? And so when we're talking about the consistency of the Lord's character, when He is just and He is kind, He will have to punish wickedness. When He is just and He is kind, He will have to forbid things and encourage other things. Forbidding comfortable things and encouraging uncomfortable things. Because He understands and we don't. So I have Hebrews 1 in here, which is a tremendous passage. Um, has a lot going on, but it's really powerful. Um, the author of Hebrews, who uh, chooses to remain anonymous, he or she, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, whom he also made the world. Through whom he also made the world, excuse me. And listen to verse 3. This is nuts. And he, speaking of Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is just tremendous that he's saying when you look at Jesus in the gospels, when you look at the things that he said, the things that he does, that is exactly what God is like. And qualify that statement with, he says some really difficult things. Like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Or like, uh, if you don't hate your father and mother, then you don't love me. You know? He says difficult things. It's not like he just says nice things. But those incredibly compassionate and kind things that he says are exactly what the Lord is like. And sometimes the language, Son of God, can uh, lead us incorrectly to think that, like, the Lord, God, the Father, created Jesus, and then Jesus did God's stuff. But the reality is we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that title, the Son of God, and how they are both uncreated. So um, a main passage that we're gonna be looking at today is actually um, Acts chapter two. Um, if you wanna get there, we'll, we'll camp out there for a, a little bit. Um, Acts chapter two, and I wanna read verse 36. And so if you guys are familiar with Acts chapter two, it's a, it's a, it's a cornerstone piece. It's an important chapter in, in the whole story. So in Acts chapter two, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. He told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem, and they'll be endowed with power to do the work of the ministry. So they've been praying. I think they've been hanging out at, like, Mark's mom's house probably. And um, they've been eating together and praying and fasting, worshiping, all that good stuff that Christians are supposed to do. And then after 10 days, after Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit manifested in a unique and tremendous way where there was mighty rushing winds and manifestations of fire above their heads. They started to speak of the great deeds of God. But the, the difference here is that their words of prophecy where they're speaking about God were in languages that they didn't know. And people were really blown away by this. People all around, there's already a festival going on in Jerusalem at the time. People from all around come close and they're like, what in the world? These people sound like drunk people, but they're talking about Jesus and they're speaking languages that I know these poor Galileans don't know. What is going on? so there's this big crowd that gathers as these people are are just screaming and bringing a lot of attention to the Lord. And then Peter... Um, stands up and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to speak to them about Jesus. And he kind of wraps up his message and his explanation for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of Jesus with verse 36 in chapter 2. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This title, Lord and Christ, is used with slight variations like Christ, Lord, you know, Um, like almost a hundred times in the New Testament. And spoiler alert, it's all referring to Jesus. (laughs) Like every time it's talking about the Lord and Christ, it's referring to Jesus. And so I want to like that by itself, like it's almost a hundred times. I didn't do the counting. I read that. (laughs) But like um, that by itself means this is pretty important. We should look at this. And so I want to take uh, a couple minutes and look at those terms, specifically Christ, because uh, the word Christ is used all the time in the New Testament. But uh, the Bible takes next to no time to explain what it means. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Like, we we know what it means because people teach us about what it means. But the reality is, like, that word, the same word, is translated uh, sometimes in your Bible three different ways. Isn't that funny? Like, I think in Luke 1, in most translations, uh, it might be Matthew 1. Excuse me. I didn't look at this up. But it actually says that uh, this is the genealogy of uh, Jesus, the Messiah. And then at the end, it says this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ. And if you were just reading that for the first time, you're like, what do these words mean? The same thing. But for whatever reason, they're translated into two different languages in the same chapter. And also, you'll see that word in the Old Testament all the time. But it's almost always translated in English, which is the English version of Messiah or Christ is anointed one. And this is really interesting because uh, anointing in the ancient world served a lot of different purposes. The, uh, like anointing was a way to refresh yourself, it was part of like a healing process, all sorts of things. But when you're talking about one who is anointed, one who is Messiah, one who is Christ, that is referring to an anointed king. So you could actually think of the word Christ to actually be the Greek version of the Hebrew throne name. So think like Pharaoh. Nobody was actually named Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was the throne name for the king of Egypt. Does that make sense? And so if we look at Saul, the tall, hot guy from from the Old Testament that became king, he was Messiah. That's what they would call him because he was the anointed king of Israel. And so the the contention doesn't come in with the the definition of the term. We all know what Messiah means now. It means the one who is anointed. With the context of it being the king of Israel. But the, the tension comes in when we start to add a definite article. The Christ. Like this is a different one. Because every king in Israel's history was called Messiah. But now we see there is this difference with the person of Jesus that is the Messiah. For the, for the rest of today, I'm just going to use the word Christ, if that's okay with everybody. We're, we could take a vote on Christ versus Messiah. Anointed one is a mouthful, though. It's, but Christ, we'll just stick with Christ. It's the shortest one. We'll just go with that. Um, so let's look at uh, 2 Samuel 7. Um, so let's, let's look at what this could mean to a Jewish hearer. So here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan the prophet is speaking to David the king and responding to David's life. And he says this, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. See that term, son of God there? When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So this is a powerful prophetic word rooted in historical context because Nathan is speaking to David and it directly applies to his son, Solomon. So Solomon would then after build a house, For the lord's name that is true of history we can prove that but there was more understanding that the jewish hearer brought from this not even like the christians later on ascribed meaning to this that we didn't previously understand like the jewish herder the jewish hearer understood something in this and they would teach and practice something in this that the word forever isn't just used loosey-goosey that what nathan is promising by the lord is forever That there would be a physical descendant from David who would literally reign from Jerusalem forever. And we know this because the Bible, again, teaches about it. So if we jump back to Acts chapter 2, let's take a look at some of the content of Peter's sermon that he ended with verse 36. We're going to start in verse 21. I'm going to go kind of quickly, but it'll be on the screen. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Listen to this phrase. This is so powerful since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David, say, I, for David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor, let your, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have, been made, you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, listen, Peter is just this ordinary, uneducated man. He's just taking people to task about their thoughts about God. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. So they're saying, our entire history of our faith is built on this idea. That 2 Samuel 7 was not just a promise that David would have a son who would be king. It's that there would be a descendant of his on the throne forever. And so when when David is talking about in the Psalms, like, you did not let my flesh undergo decay, Peter is saying, yeah, but he super did. David is dead. We have his bones. We can go see them he is dead so what was he talking about in the prophetic what was he speaking of look at verse 31 this is nuts he looked ahead what a what a beautiful like definition of prophecy (laughs) like it makes it look like he just like opened a window and he's like oh i get it now like he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of christ and that he was neither abandoned to hades nor did his flesh suffer decay this jesus god raised up again to which we are all witnesses Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Peter is, is accurately defining the long-standing understanding of this promise to David that is repeated and prayed about and sung about several times during his lifetime in all the generations excuse me, after it. God has purposed that one of David's descendants will literally not suffer the agony of death and will reign from Jerusalem forever. And the hard thing is David and all of his sons carried this mantle. Um, I, was, I was talking with a couple of people, and it's like, I wonder if David thought Solomon was that, that person. <laughs> what if Solomon is the one that will... Never die. What if, what if he will never depart from the loving kindness of God? What if he will reign in Jerusalem and the temple will be established forever? And that's just not how it ended. Because every king from David unto the uh, dep- uh, deportation to Babylon and past the Maccabees, every person from the line of David died. Every person was buried or tossed away and they all suffered the same grim fate until Jesus so here at the very end, um, Peter is quoting Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament because it deals very heavily with Jesus. And I love the way Jesus talks about this. This is a, a powerful, powerful little mini story from Matthew 22. Are you, are you still with me? Is that, are we still good? Okay. Okay, Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together... Jesus asked them a question. So through this, like, Jesus isn't just explaining everything that he's talking about. He is able to ask questions that give us hints at the way people believed and the way people thought. He asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. So this already shows us that was universally understood, that the religious elites of the day understood that there was such a thing as the Christ, and that he would be the son of David. He would be a descendant of David's line. Verse 43 says, He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying in verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I, make your enemies beneath, uh, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. This is, this is Jesus holding a little lamb, you know, in your in your old school oil painting. that He was intimidating, <laughs> like, no one, like, what is he talking about? Because what he's showing us here is that they understood the Messiah, the, the Christ, would be the descendant of David. He'd be a physical human being. Additionally, this conversation that happens in Psalm 110, where David is, again, looking ahead and seeing something that has not happened, where the Lord is speaking to my Lord and saying, I will put all of creation under your subjection and you will reign over everything. And what Jesus is showing to the Pharisees who are the religious elite they're memorizing the Torah they're doing they're experts. And he's like you think this is the Messiah. I'm sorry, I said I would use Christ. You said this would be the Christ, but also Christ would be God that would be David's son. So how does that how does that hash out? And they just crickets. They don't say anything, because they're like, I don't know. Either I've never thought about that, or I don't care to venture the answer. I don't understand, because it kind of doesn't make sense. How could this person be God, but also be a man? Because if we look at, I don't, I don't try to like dive into like Hebrew very often, because I mean, I didn't go to college. Um, I'm just going on what, what other much older, much smarter people have said, and then reading that. But when you look at Psalm 110, and you look at the Lord. That is what we call the Tetragrammaton. It's usually, in most Bibles, it's represented by four capital letters, L-O-R-D. Tetragrammaton just means a symbol of four letters. And what that represents is the impronounceable, sacred name of God. So, like, we can't say his name. So we'll just write this symbol, Y-H-W-H, and that we'll know that's God's personal name. That's his sacred and holy name. And so first character in in the chapter, very clearly understood, the Lord. (laughs) This Lord is the Lord, said to my Lord. Now this word is Adon, which we would generally render Adonai, which means almighty God. (laughs) So it's like, I can imagine being the scribe and David is like singing and he's like in the, he's in the tabernacle and he's singing and he's praying and he's playing his guitar and stuff. And then he's like, I see something. And the scribe's like, sweet, sweet. sweet. Okay, let's read it down. The Lord. they're like, oh, great. The Lord said to my Lord, what? <laughs> Who's that? Who's that now? Adon? That Yahweh said to Adon? Who are you talking? We only serve one God, David. He's like, oh, no, this is, this is Christ. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's Christ. That the Lord is speaking to Christ, but he's calling Christ God? What? Who is this person? What are you speaking of? Um, and thankfully Jesus has this difficult conversation with the Pharisees because it hel- helps all of us uh, Gentiles understand what they believed, <laughs> understand what they were coming from and we didn't just make it up when we adopted Jesus, you know when some missionaries came from the east and showed us what it means to follow the one true living God, we didn't have to guess we could, we could actually understand what they thought about him <laughs> so I'm going to reference two passages, and for the sake of time I'm not going to like deep dive into both of them, but they're really interesting. So if you are taking notes or if you have a margin in your Bible, write down Daniel 7, specifically uh, 9 through 14, because um, this is the half of the prophet Daniel that just goes off the rails. The first half, like the, the lion's den and the fiery furnace, that kind of stuff people can grasp, but this is where stuff gets bananas. And so the chapter starts out, like the first eight verses are like, Animals, like crazy beasts that are blaspheming God and just crazy stuff. And then it says that Daniel keeps looking and he sees the Ancient of Days. This is actually the only passage in the Bible that refers to God as an old man. (laughs) And his throne is on fire and there's a river of fire going from it. And you're just like, what kind of heavy metal God is this? This is crazy. And then it says that everyone, myriads and myriads, tens of thousands of people are standing in front of him. They open the books and he begins to judge and the the highlight of that judgment of all creation is that he points out, and one like the Son of Man comes up in front of God, the unapproachable, eternal, immortal God, one that looks like strikingly like a human being, versus like God's fiery, crazy white head thing that he's doing. Um, one that just looks like a normal human being comes up before him, and God gives him all the glory all the honor and dominion over the entire earth forever. And Daniel's like, what does that mean? Start with the animals, let's get to that person. <laughs> and the angel like starts to explain things to him. And he's like, oh, so this is, this is the Christ. This means like the human reign with God. Okay, yeah, sure, I, yeah, I get that later on, Daniel starts fasting and stuff, and then he sees Jesus and stuff. It's crazy. Read the book, it's wild. The second passage, we actually just talked about this in Deeper Project last week. Shameless plug. Um, Isaiah 53 uh, talks about the same figure. The same figure, who is also strikingly human, is not attractive. <laughs> the, the Bible actually says he had nothing about his appearance that would be appealing to a person, he looks totally ordinary. Um, not like Saul the first King of Israel, who was tall and hot and blonde, but this this person was was normal. And he somehow never sins, but instead functions as an intercessor and takes all the pain, all the sorrow, all the physical torment that is due to every human being on the planet. and it says that he is able to successfully atone for other people's sins. This is unprecedented. This is wild. We're doing this with like animals, but we have to do it every single year. But it's saying he's able to make intercession for many with his own life. And when he looks at it, he's satisfied and he's happy. Who in the world is this? In Acts, there's actually this guy from Ethiopia that is reading this. He's got a copy and he's reading it in his carriage. And he's like, what is going on? God, help me understand this. And then a disciple just like, comes up alongside him and he's like, let me explain it to you. And he's like, is this the prophet? Is this Isaiah that's suffering for the sake of many? And he's like, no. Let me tell you, this is the man Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, what? Because from Daniel 7 to Isaiah 53, we get two definitions of one person. That there is a person who does all the things divine, but yet is strikingly human. And then there is one person who is strikingly divine in his sinlessness and his holiness, but yet suffers brutally like a human. How do we reconcile this person who is truly God? Because God doesn't share glory with another. God is at the hierarchy. He's at the the absolute pinnacle of divinity. There is no one like him. There is none beside him, except this one, who apparently can suffer and die and be happy about it. (laughs) <laughs> this is super, super <laughs> good, I don't even know. So right now, the way I wrote this in my notes is it's like a tapestry. I don't know if anybody makes tapestries, but probably raise your hand if you've ever made a puzzle. Yeah, made a puzzle, cool. If, if anybody hasn't made a puzzle, I'll explain how a puzzle works. Generally, if you're, if you're building a puzzle well, you'll build the edges, right? So you wanna get the, the flat sides first. There's some puzzles that are like round or don't have flat edges. I don't mess with those puzzles. <laughs> I'm not smart enough. So you want to build the edges. If it's a rectangle, you build the edges. And then you start building in and you start building images that you see. So right now, we have built the edges of the puzzle. We see this figure, the Christ, the Lord and the Christ, and we need to reconcile the, the middle of the image. How is this possible? Because if it's not possible, then we're all... Lying, I don't know, we're, we're all deceived. And many people think that. And many people poke holes in, in the Bible story and they're like, you don't even know what you believe, you don't even understand this God that you claim to serve. And it's, and it's the, the middle of the puzzle that we need to finish out and see clearly who this person is that can be a physical descendant of David but also live forever, can also die and also live, can have all the glory yet be incorruptible. And I love it because there's all this tension that has been brewing for thousands of years. And I just, I love it. Peter stands up, arrogant Peter, <laughs> who gets rebuked by the Lord often in the Gospels. He stands up and he says, like, I have the answer. I've seen, I've seen it. All the questions that we have concerning the Lord and his character and what he's like and what he's doing and how this is possible I've seen the answer, and it's Jesus the Nazarene. And thousands of people are stoked, and uh, a lot of people are not. <laughs> a lot of people are like, that's a lie. He was just a crazy person. Like that's, That doesn't make any sense. But people then begin to click, and the Holy Spirit illuminates their hearts, and they're like, oh, my gosh. That's the only way this is possible, that the Lord had to do something that none of us expected, that the religious superior, the intellectual didn't understand and didn't see coming. That all these, all, these thread, all these threads are coming together. Man, I love this. This is super cool. All right. So uh, Deuteronomy 6, we'll look at that. <clears throat> Am I going in order? Is it pretty in order for you? It's pretty in order for me, so I hope it matches up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Um, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Uh, Probably a little familiar. Jesus ends up uh, quoting this later on. But to the Jewish person, this is called the Shema. I was corrected, and, and it's actually pronounced Shema, but that sounds silly. I don't speak Hebrew. I'm not going to try and pretend like I do. Shema! Like uh, this is a confession that Jewish Orthodox Jewish people are still confessing to this day in Hebrew. They're still singing this and praying this and and uh, saying this over their Shabbat meals and different stuff like that. Where it's this memory and it's this reflection and it's this worship that the Lord our God is one. And then they look at Christians and they're like, "You dirty heathens! You think God is two? You're crazy." This is nuts. And then we don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. Like, oh my gosh, we're just getting, we're getting into all kinds of weeds with those, with those sort of things. It's like, you don't, need, uh, like it's this understanding of God that is difficult and complex. And so they confess over and over again, the Lord our God is one. And we, we talk to, to Muslim people and they're like, you, you are polytheistic. You worship multiple gods if you think Jesus is God. The Lord, your own scriptures say the Lord is one. And Paul who is smarter than any of us, who is like expert-level apostle, <laughs> uh, he offers this to a Gentile church, and he's like, let me explain to you how this works, and I'll explain to you in the same symbols that we've been singing, my people have been singing for generations, and he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8. So look at that. Yet for us. Um, so in the context, what Paul is talking about here is uh, eating things that have been sacrificed to idols and how we, how we deal with idolatry in our, in our everyday life. <clears throat> Yet for us there is but one God the Father from whom all things from whom are all things and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him I have a graphic to illustrate what just happened and in the Corinthian church there were Jewish people there like the beginning of the church was Jewish people and this is effectively a Jewish faith <laughs> But what Paul does here is probably something that Christians did often to realign themselves with Judaism, is he is actually inserting Jesus into the divine identity, into the Shema. So look at what he did. "Hero Israel, yet for us. So we see those phrases connect. Israel, us. Make sense? The difference is he's now including everybody else. He's <laughs> like, listen, everyone. The Lord is our God, and there is but one God. This confession throughout all of history will always be true. In our Trinitarian faith, there is one God. But Paul's so crazy. He says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So when we're defining one, it isn't limited to the fact that there is a single personality. It's limited to the fact of the consistency of his character because what he defines as the Lord is God and Jesus is the Lord is from whom are all things and we exist for him and by whom are all things and we exist through him. He's saying that this same figure who spoke in the darkness in Genesis 1 and said, let there be light, is the same one who spoke to you and said, my yoke is easy, my yoke is light. This is the same one. Siri is trying to talk to us. Sorry, that literally has never happened to me before. I've never used Siri on my computer. Anyways, so I just drew arrows to connect the phrases because Paul is very intentional. This wasn't just accidental. He's like, oh yeah, I have that language kind of tucked in my Jewish memory. No, Paul at this point is very much Jewish. And he's very much confessing this same Jewish prayer, but he's saying this one by whom and through him and for whom all things exist is still Jesus. Um, so I hope that resonates with you because that blows me away. Um, I have another quote. <clears throat> the uniqueness of the divine identity was characterized especially by two features, which we saw in, in 1 Corinthians 8. So let's look That one, that the one God is the sole creator of all things and that the one God is the sole ruler of all things. To this unique identity correspond Minultri, the exclusive worship of the one and only God who is so characterized. And so the confessions of the New Testament are that Jesus wasn't just a good agent of God, but that Jesus was the one through whom all things were created. That some of the, the best Bible you can memorize in John chapter one is like, in the beginning was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through him all things exist. Um and this is a statement that I haven't fully cooked, so don't like don't uh like take me to, to credit on this. But um, again, a teacher I quoted earlier, Stephen Venable, he said this, and I um, have thought about it a lot and, and kind of taken this question into my reading of the scripture. But he said that Jesus and the Pharisees never really debated about who the Christ was. They more debated on what he does. So there was an understanding already existing, not really completely, like, pun intended, fleshed out by the Pharisees, like, in order for this to work like we think it's supposed to work, the the Christ is going to be a man, but he also has to possess like striking divine power. A man unique to anyone else. A man holy to anyone else. But then when Jesus shows up and begins to assert his Christship and starts washing people's feet and hanging out with poor people and <laughs> inviting people to come and have faith and, and uh, like dealing with sinners and forgiving sins, that's when they're like, Wait. This is not what the Christ does. And they're exchanging Daniel 7 for Isaiah 53, where Isaiah 53 said he suffered. And they're like, this guy's homeless. How is this, how is this the Christ, the king of Israel? How is this going to be? He's, he's kind of stinky. You know, he's, he's like, he doesn't live in a palace. He doesn't have an army. He's not doing any of these things that we were expecting him to do because they misunderstood what the Lord was doing. Um. alright one more time we're going to quote Richard Bachman are you guys ready maybe it starts with the New Testament should be quote number five I think there it is oh no that's not it quote number four maybe did I skip ahead Shucks. All right, I will read it to you. (laughs) The New Testament writers did not see their Jewish monotheistic heritage as in any way an obstacle to the inclusion of Jesus in the divine identity. They used its resources extensively in order to precisely include Jesus in the divine identity. And they saw this inclusion of Jesus in the divine identity to be the fulfillment of the eschatological expectation of Jewish monotheism. That the one God would be universally acknowledged as such in his universal rule over all things. So let me explain to you what that's saying because you didn't get to read it. But that was completely my fault. Don't blame Elliot on that one. Like, I, I'm the one that puts that stuff in there. Um, The point is, he's saying, like, in the New Testament, these these saints are writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they weren't concerned with the fact that they belonged to a monotheistic religion. They actually said, this is is our epiphany. That the way that this all works, and God can finally get what he wants and what he's been asking for forever, which is uh, uninhibited relationship under the, this covenant of Abraham, which is by faith, the only way this was possible is through Jesus. So we are glad and enthusiastic to include Jesus in this because that's the only way that works. Otherwise, how is God going to accomplish this work? How is God going to provide for himself a worthy sacrifice if it's not God himself that is the sacrifice? And how can God s- sacrifice himself if he's not flesh? and blood and bone and they're like of course and they were, they, were, they were pretty fortunate because Jesus actually taught them and so Jesus sat down with them and, and opened up passages like Isaiah 53 and be like yeah that's me um, <laughs> Saul may like we're talking singing about, oh Lord my Lord oh like this is a crazy theophany like the angel of the Lord like that Jacob wrestled with who what I've seen God's face what no no one's seen God's face what are you talking about it's like and Jesus is like it's me it was me that was, that was me. I beat up Jacob. <laughs> so let's look at question number two. Why did Jesus have to die? Like I said, we kind of already answered this question. But the, the hardship that we deal with here in theology, because one of, the, one of the major obstacles you'll get as you share the gospel with someone who does not believe in Jesus is convincing them that they need to be saved. Because a lot of times people will admit, something's wrong. The world needs help. I'm okay, but the world needs help. And sometimes people will be like, no, I suck real bad. There's no hope for this. Like, this, this is just a mess. And to be able to affirm in truth that there is something incorrectably, uncorrectably, there's something impossible to correct that is wrong with you. But there is a solution outside of yourself. And this is predicated on the fact that um, you're in sin. I remember uh, Shelby's sister was sharing with me a long time ago that one of the major revelations she had as a kid who grew up in church and started going to youth group, she kind of felt like elite. She's like, you know what? I read the Bible on my own. I don't really need to come to youth group. I don't really need to come to church And something that her youth pastor was able to get through to her is that she needs Jesus. Just because she believes in Jesus does not mean that she doesn't need Jesus. And that without Jesus, none of this would be possible. And she said that was a a major tipping point in her life to realize, like, I am hopeless without him. And I think in theology we call this concept federal headship. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Um but it's referring back to my namesake, which is Adam, and this, this young man who committed sin, and the wage of which God communicated very clearly is as you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And so he laid it out. Later on, Paul teaches about it in Romans 6. He says the wage of sin is death. Full stop. That's the way it works. If you sin, the payment required is death. We can talk about what sin is, what sin isn't, whatever, whatever, whatever. But the point is, This is the the payment that no person can pay. This is the wrath that God rightfully owes to you. And we need some sort of solution. We need some sort of answer. We need some sort of uh, another federal head because through Adam, death reigned. So we need someone else. And we have now the, the, the precedent for someone else acting on your behalf. Because you can't work hard enough, especially, like, Jesus ends up pointing out, like, even if you do good things, God can kind of read your mind. So if you, like, act nice to your neighbors, but you, like, are angry at them and you hate them in your heart, that's still sin. And then it's like, well, then who can be saved? With man, it's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. So let's look at Romans 5. Um because uh, the Bible explains it a lot better than I do. We're starting in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him, him being Jesus, who was to come. Uh, So (laughs) if you look at that, it's pretty shocking. He's saying that everyone died because of sin, even if they didn't sin like Adam it's like, what? And everyone is doomed to sin, like Adam, regardless of their disposition or their upbringing. Um, I'm just going to read the whole thing, so we are go to 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abound to many." So he's saying, these things are similar, so think about them together, but the grace of God is so much greater than the sin of man. It is above and beyond what was necessary to accomplish the task. Verse 16, "The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned uh, for the one hand, <laughs> For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So, this is the, the thing that is being described in Isaiah 53 as Jesus is suffering under the wrath of God for the sins of other people. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So he's saying, like, we can all learn this federal headship stuff. We can understand how the sin of Adam has plagued and doomed mankind. But the important thing to glean from this is that so much more does grace now our inheritance. That the kindness of the Lord overturned this. In the same manner that one man could live righteous and suffer that his death could bring life to everyone. Verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Hallelujah. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is all to say that Jesus was so holy and significant that his own intercession, his own death, resulted in the free gift of righteousness to all people. Um... And so as God set forth the payment that the wage of sin is death, God so therefore paid the payment with his own death. And so God, who is holy and perfect, who could atone for sin, had to become man, who because God is immortal, he cannot die. So he had to become man. (laughs) So that way he could die while retaining his holiness and his divinity. And Invite this into your life because it is confusing. It is hard to explain. But be excited and be of good cheer that Jesus is God. Because otherwise this doesn't work. I remember talking to the most famous atheist in my high school. She wanted to debate me. And I was like, I don't really, I think I'd been saved for like two months. And I was like, I don't know about this, but I'm excited to talk about the Lord. And she's like, I don't get why Jesus is so special. I would die for other people if I could. And I was like, it wouldn't matter. My life wouldn't matter. Paul says, hardly a, per, a righteous person would die for a good person, much less an evil person. And what would, it, what would it profit us? Because that's not how life works. I don't have the credit to outpay your debt. I don't have the equity to, to assume your debt. In, even just in carnal terms of money, I don't have what it takes but when it comes to your soul, are you kidding me? No one could do that. So how was Jesus able to die, Uh, number three? This is a question I hope you're asking. It's like, okay, so he became a man, but that sounds like Star Trek stuff, you know? It's like, well, how are these ships able to travel faster than the speed of light? Uh, Crystals? Like, okay, that's an explanation, right? Like, no, like Jesus was able to die because he became a man, uh, because man cannot produce perfection on their own. So Jesus decided to shock everyone in God's grace by being truly both at the same time. And so here's here's a quote. This is the one with the dots. Yeah. The identity of the God of Israel does not exclude the unexpected or surprising. That's pretty fascinating. Quite the contrary. This This God's freedom as God requires his freedom from all human expectation, even those based on his revealed identity, he may act in new and surprising ways in which he proves to be the same God. Do you get that? That God reserves freedom from your expectations and he can surprise you with ways that he proves faithful. Isn't that wild? I think that's wild. Uh, in which he proves to be the same God, consistent with his known identity, but in, in unexpected ways, he is both free and faithful. Thank you, Dr. Richard Bachman, for contributing so much to this morning. <laughs> so, uh, God was able to die because you're not his boss. <laughs> so you're like, God, you can't do that. Who says? I formed you. My thoughts about you are more numerable or innumerable. And I sustain you with every breath you take. I can do what I want to do. And this is the way my eschatological promise will come about. I will send the Holy Spirit on a young girl and I will plant a seed of human life inside of her and she will give birth to a baby and he will be called the son of God. It's not like Greek mythology grossness. This is holy and sacred. And he's like, I don't have to do things the way you expected me to. Because honestly, there's probably more powerful babies than human babies. A giraffe is born at like six feet tall and they can walk on like day two. Human babies can't even hold up their head for weeks. Six hours they can't hold up? Oh, a dra- I was like, a baby cannot hold up their head in six hours. <laughs> I was like, you've had some babies, but I've, I've been there. It's not how it works. We're like, for a long time. <laughs> Let's look at the scripture. Um, Isaiah 57. Uh, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever... Whose name is holy, they're just landed on thick. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. (laughs) The Lord is just saying here, like, I am unlike anything else. I am transcendent and holy and majestic, but I also really love my people. And I'll do what it takes to be close to them. And I will put all these mysterious shadows inside the scripture that all terminate at the feet of Jesus. And then you begin to realize this is what God is really like. That God is so just, but he's so merciful. That God is so holy and intimidating and unapproachable, but yet he's so kind. Because the same Jesus that couldn't that people were afraid to ask him questions was the same Jesus that would like pick up children and kiss them. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.